With that said, let's now turn our attention where it needs to be this morning, onto the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. About 20 years ago now, I was at a small wedding in Louisiana, and the weather that day was nasty. It was absolutely torrential downpour of rain. And when the groom entered the building for the wedding, he was drenched. I mean, literally suit dripping with water from the rain that he had encountered. And as they began the ceremony and began walking through it, they got to the point of the exchange of rings, and he was supposed to have brought them, realized he had forgotten the rings. And the pastor kind of laughed a little bit, and he said, do you know where they are? And he said, I left them on the wedding, uh, the, the, uh, what is it called, the wedding license, the marriage license at my house. And he said, you, you left the marriage license? He said, I can't marry you without the license. And so literally this guy ran back through the rain to his car and to his, from his car to his house, from his house back to his car, and from his car back into the church, soaking wet, now with everything in hand. And the good news is it worked. They got married. But when I got back in the car with my sister after this wedding, the first song that came on the radio was a song by Alanis Morissette called Ironic, in which it says, it's like rain on a wedding day. Isn't it ironic? Irony is a great tool, and the Bible uses irony to incredible effect to help us learn what God is teaching us. Sometimes irony in the Bible is bitter. It is sarcastic. It is biting from God. Other times it is gracious and redemptive. And here in this final servant song in Isaiah, we are going to see the redemptive nature of the ironies that God presents. We are going to see that he uses this to display the surprising realities of the nature of Christ and the nature of the gospel. So what we're going to attempt to do is to see 15 beautiful ironies that are found here in this text. Now that is not all that is in this text. In fact, when I was first piecing this sermon together, I found 51 things that I found to be beautiful ironies here. That's almost a year worth of sermons, but we're going to try to condense that, and I've selected 15 of what I find to be some of the most significant and helpful ways to consider the ironic statements made here to highlight the gospel that we find here. Steve did a great job of setting us up today, because if we get this right, everything else in our church will be headed in a good trajectory. If we get this wrong, everything else in the church will be wrong. So let's pray that the Lord would help us, that he would work through his word today to build us in our understanding and in our awareness so that we might understand God rightly and therefore live for him rightly. Let's pray. God, today as we come before your word, we recognize that there are millions of people who have read these words and not understood them, who have come to this text and been confused by them. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch who was taking a trip back from Jerusalem down to Ethiopia, and he was reading in his chariot these very words, and he said to Philip, who came to him, how could I possibly understand these things unless someone explains? God, I pray today that you would be our teacher, that you would open our understanding, that you would give us wisdom and clarity so that we might, as much as possible, have an accurate view of Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross so that we therefore might love him 
and live for him correctly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin these ironies by considering the fact that this chapter is perhaps the highlight of the entire book of Isaiah. This is perhaps the pinnacle where everything that we have studied all summer has been pointing. When we arrive here at the end of 52 and the beginning and throughout the chapter of 53, it is the culmination of all of the promises that we have seen about these servant songs going on ever since chapter 40. So let's dive right in now and consider the first ironic statement. The suffering servant will be superior. Verse 13 says of chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now at the very outset of this song, we see what the result is going to be. The one who is going to be brought low will eventually be exalted. Now, although it is ironic to point out that a servant would be elevated to some place of high position, like just think of that, you walk into a room and you ask yourself in the ancient world, which of these people is going to be highly exalted? The last person that you would consider is the one washing everyone's feet. Yet he said he will be highly exalted. We must understand that being raised up, though, as a servant, that's not ultimately impossible or unheard of to rise above their station. What makes this statement much more profoundly and beautifully ironic is that this servant will be exalted above all others. It's not just through self-promotion. It's not just that he will uh, achieve this exaltation, but it's how it will happen. It's not through self-promotion or by subjugating others. It's not by pushing others around harshly. Rather, Jesus was gentle and gracious and humble. And he displayed through his servanthood, throughout his earthly ministry, that he was not like us. When we have power, we abuse power. But Jesus Christ, this humble servant, will be exalted, not through the normal human means, but by his active and passive obedience to the Father as he was crucified for our sins. That's why this becomes so ironic. How is he exalted? By all of these other things that we are about to see. His exaltation looks like destruction. That leads us to our very next beautiful irony. The perfect person will be pulverized. Verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now when I say that the perfect person will be pulverized, I'm speaking, of course, of the sinless perfection of Jesus. But I want you to consider the, the ways that that expresses itself. I don't want you just to think of this in terms of Jesus not doing bad things. I want you to understand that Jesus fulfilled everything that God intended humanity to be when he created us. When he made Adam and Eve in the garden, he made them to perfectly re reflect the image of God in the world. We, as his image bearers, are supposed to display him to the globe. This is what God is like. He is loving. He is gracious. He is kind. He is humble. We are supposed to reflect him in these ways, but we fail at that. But Jesus succeeded. And through his perfect life, Jesus shows us the human experience, the way it's supposed to be lived. He shows us that he was never envious. He was never bitter. He was never rude. 
He never once lied or gossiped or stole. He was never cruel or rebellious or foolish. In his humanity, he was the exact kind of person that everyone would like to befriend. This is the guy you want in your corner. Yet, what happened? That's not how he was received. Instead, it says he was brutalized beyond human recognition. Isaiah reveals that this Messiah would experience so much physical trauma and cruelty that that he would not even look like a human any longer. His beard would have been ripped out. Now, ladies, I don't know if you know what this is like, but just having a few of your beard hairs, that's painful. But it doesn't do a lot of damage. They grow right back. But what if you had your entire beard ripped out of your face? What would that do? It would leave nothing but massive, torn splotches of skin. His eyes were probably swollen shut from the beatings that he received, both from the fists that we read about in Luke, as well as the reed that he was beaten with that they made him hold as a staff. His head would have been swollen far beyond normal size due to the thorns that were stabbed into it from a crown that was placed on his head. His chest and his back would have been so extremely lacerated from being flogged that probably the lower levels of muscles and maybe even some of his organs would have been visible. And these wounds, they would have been filled with dirt and sweat and dust as Jesus fell to the ground, unable to carry his own cross any further. And then his hands and feet were nailed with large spikes to a cross as the perfect man hung exposed without clothing for all to see. He was completely dehumanized by the very people that he had created as humans. That's beautifully ironic. Third, we see that the dehumanized man will decontaminate many. Verse 15 says also, so shall he sprinkle many nations. What's going to happen with this man who's Visage is marred beyond recognition? Well, it's impossible to understand the statement without understanding the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. Once a year, the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, one time a year where they would offer sacrifice. And after they had completed the sacrifice there, they would take the blood and they would take what remained and they would sprinkle it with a hyssop branch symbolically declaring the people were clean. The nation has been cleaned. Your penalty has been postponed one more year. Come back next year and we'll do it again. This was a symbolic declaration that you are pure. This sprinkling was only to be done if an acceptable sacrifice had been offered by an exemplary priest and then sprinkled only on God's exclusive people. This was never to be done to anyone outside of Israel. But here we are told that the very violence that was enacted against the suffering servant was designed to be a suitable sacrifice for the purpose of extending the boundaries far beyond Israel to many nations. The purification that was provided for sin would be suitable to bring Gentiles, like most of us in this room, to Jesus Christ and to God the Father. It brought us into a place of righteousness before the Lord. We were made pure by this sprinkling that comes from his body being torn to shreds. Jesus, the high priest, offered himself as that sacrifice to bring many nations and make them pure. Fourthly, 
the mighty men will become mute. Look at the rest of verse 15 and verse 16. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now, if there is one thing that powerful people love to do, it's to make speeches. They love to talk. They love to be heard. They love it when people have to listen to their opinions. But here we find that the Messiah would bring cause for even the mightiest rulers of earth to become speechless. Now, there are multiple ways to understand this passage. Uh, On the one hand, it could be speaking about the fact that even the great rulers of this world will occasionally hear the gospel and be shocked by it and believe. Others believe that this is actually referencing those who specifically condemned Jesus on the cross, like Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas. But I don't really think that those interpretations fit the bill for three reasons. First, because those people don't seem to have a difficult time speaking. Secondly, the ones who trust in Christ cannot believe unless it has been explained to them. And thirdly, I don't think that Herod and Pilate or Caiaphas ever understood the gospel. Unless something occurred we don't find in the scripture, I don't believe that they ever came to saving faith. So I don't think that those interpretations hold. So what is this talking about? I believe that this is a reference to the fact that there will come a day when every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Consider the most powerful rulers in the world today. You've got Joe Biden here in the U.S. You've got Xi Jinping over in China. Just consider for a moment perhaps the most ridiculously powerful to his own people because they have no rights. Uh, That would be um, Kim Jong-un over in North Korea. He is the most powerful dictator over his people. He controls most aspects of their lives. He literally demands that his people worship him as a god or face death. But what happens when Kim Jong-un stands before God? What happens when he stands at the judgment seat on the last day? What will he be able to say? Let all mortal flesh keep silence. The only cry that will rise from that crowd standing there will be, Jesus is Lord, and it will get louder and louder as those who were forced into silence will repeat and proclaim, yes, Jesus is Lord, and it will be to the glory of God the Father. Every person who has ever lived will stand there and must admit, yes, he is Lord, and their knees will bow. Fifth, we see that there is an irony in the fact that the crown jewel of heaven will become a common Jew on earth. Verse 1 of 53 Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. All the way back in chapter 5 of Isaiah, Israel was spoken about prophetically like a vineyard. And there, it speaks about how this vineyard belongs to the Lord. And God condemns that vineyard because it only produced wild grapes, which represent sin. Therefore, God promised that he was going to destroy the vineyard. He was going to tear down its walls. He was going to let wild beasts into it. And it would become nothing but a desolation. And here we find that out of that dry, barren, sinful ground, there is a vine that would be produced. But it is not the normal vine. It is not one that produces wild fruit. Rather, it is a life-giving vine that gives life to all who are in him. He is the vine. We, nothing but the branches. And as you would expect, 
If a Messiah was to come, wouldn't he come beautifully? Wouldn't he robe himself in earthly majesty? Wouldn't he make himself in such a way that he would have superstar quality looks that would cause everyone to be drawn to him? Or maybe a voice that would be so attractive to people that they couldn't help but listen to him. I remember I had a friend growing up. Uh, She would wear a t-shirt to our Christian school that had a picture of Jesus on it. We were very restricted in what we could wear to our school. But they had a uh, an allowance for Christian t-shirts. And this t-shirt had a, an image of Jesus with almost like an emo haircut and a six-pack. And he's dying on the cross, but he's like totally fit. There's no blood to be found on him. That is not the appearance that we see. What we find here is that he was not attractive by human standards. In fact, if you were to do a police-style lineup of Jesus and Barabbas and Judas and Peter... I don't think that you could figure out which one is which. Jesus humbly came in the form of a servant, not just figuratively, but literally looking like the lowest of the low. Probably a below-average-looking man. Sixth, the revered and distinguished will become reviled and despised. Consider verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you remember back to the magisterial throne room scene in Isaiah chapter 6? There we see Christ seated in glory on the throne, and there we see angels flying around him. However, as they sing their chorus of holy, 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 his glory was so radiant and so brilliant that the angels had to use one pair of their wings to hide their faces from him so that they would not be blinded by the vibrant splendor radiating from Christ. They had to hide their faces because he was glorious. But in his incarnation, Jesus was not magnetically attractive to people. He was despised, meaning they thought nothing of him. And he was rejected. They denied him. Judas even betrayed him with a kiss. And at the cross, the people of Jerusalem would have viewed him as nothing more than another in a long line of messianic pretenders. And they walked by his dying body, covered their faces in disgust. Yes, they hid their faces, but not like the angels. Seventh beautiful irony in this text, the one broken and stricken by God will bear our griefs and our sorrows. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. At this point in Isaiah's song, there's a new angle being presented here. Up to this point, it has appeared that all of the suffering that the Messiah would encounter would be at the hands of evil people. But now, in a shocking twist, we see that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But that it was not at the hands only of men. He was stricken by God himself. Now, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is the one smiting you, which means killing you, who can be for you? There are many correct answers to the question, who killed Jesus? The Jews killed Jesus, the Pharisees killed Jesus, the Romans killed Jesus, Caiaphas killed Jesus, Herod killed Jesus, Pilate killed Jesus, Judas killed Jesus, the soldiers killed Jesus, you and I killed Jesus. But behind all of those things, those correct things, there is a reality that we find in the Scripture that at the cross there was a divine retribution taking place. That at the cross it was God, the Father, 
who was punishing his own son on our behalf. Now this becomes even more clear later in the text, but before we move forward, consider how the psalmists write when they felt like God was against them. Now God was not against them, but consider how they wrote as they lamented the feeling that God's eyes were not lovingly aimed toward them. They were in agony of soul. They were unable to function because they don't feel the presence of the Lord smiling down on them. They experience sorrow and grief over their lack of felt love from God. But consider Christ. Even in the midst of the greatest cause for grief and sorrow in the universe, Jesus carried our sorrows. He bore our griefs with him as well. What a mighty Messiah. Beautiful irony number eight. The innocent one will suffer for the iniquities of others. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As a parent, one of the things that is most difficult to do is to walk into a room with children who are in an argument and discover, what in the world am I supposed to do now? How do I dole out discipline to these children when I can't get the story straight? I have no idea what just happened. And inevitably, parents will occasionally get this wrong, and they will punish the wrong child even though they were innocent in the situation. Now, I vividly remember being six years old and being disciplined for something that my friend Justin John had done. And I tried to explain that I was not at the cause of this. I had not done it. I, had, I was not involved in any way. And I was being honest. Yet I still received the discipline. And you know what? I was six. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Let it be known there were many occasions which I did deserve discipline and did not receive it. I don't remember those very well. But I felt the injustice of that moment. But consider the suffering servant. He willingly experienced being pierced through his side and into his heart with a spear for sins that you committed. If you were in Christ, he took that for you, because of the things you have said, and because of the actions you have taken, because of the thoughts you have entertained. He did this for you. He was crushed by the Father because of you. This not only reminds us to take sin very seriously, every sin very seriously, but more significantly, it speaks to the nature of the atonement that took place at the cross. Jesus was many things. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was a good teacher. Yes, he was a moral example. Yes, he was victorious over sin. Yes, he conquered the death and the devil. But more than all of those things, he died for sin. As Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Those sins have been transmitted. They have been imputed to Jesus Christ. He was judged as if he himself had said those words that you have said or thought those thoughts that you have thought or had done those things that you yourself had done. He took punishment for actual sins. And this is why Martin Luther once argued that at the cross, Jesus became the greatest sinner that ever lived. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us why. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin. He made him to be sin at the cross. Jesus, the innocent one, suffered for the guilty. Beautiful irony number nine. The punishment of the servant will result in peace for sinners. Consider the rest of verse five. It says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. Now notice that chastisement has been the main underlying theme of everything we've read since chapter 40 through 52 in relation to Judah. Everything he has been teaching them is that you are going to go into judgment. You are going to experience chastisement from the hand of God the Father because of your sin. But then he says you're coming out of there. Get up and leave. Why? Did you fix it? Did you pay God off? Did you do enough to make it right? Was it just penance? Absolutely not. He is declaring to us that there is something that is going to change. Everything that we have considered this morning, this is so significant that Jesus was going to make peace for sinners like you and I. These people who have now been set free, who have been reconciled with God, it's not because of anything we have done. Steve did a great job of explaining this earlier on today. Peace is a reference to reconciliation. It is a reference to bringing two parties together that are adversarial, that are enemies, and bringing to get them together in unity. And here, by experiencing the punishment of God, we see that Jesus was able to bring the enemies of God to a place of full reconciliation with him. Not because God has moved, because he can't. If there is a problem in the relationship, it is always you. And Jesus comes and makes peace by the blood of his cross. Beautiful irony number 10, the cross of suffering will become a cure for sin. What about this whole bit here about his wounds producing healing? Honestly, this is uh, out of the whole chapter, the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied portion of what we are studying. There are multiple ways that healing is used in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes it's a reference to the physical body. Of course, we see that often in the New Testament. Jesus heals many. Uh, Sometimes it's used to speaking about the nation of Israel. For example, he tells them if they are to humble themselves and pray, God will heal their land. But what is being spoken about here is the other primary way that healing is being used in Scripture. Look how Peter explains this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes this passage. I genuinely believe he had this book of Isaiah open on his lap as he was writing these words. By his wounds, you are healed. You have been healed. Why? What, is it, what does that mean? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. What is healing? Peter is certainly not talking about your physical corpus. He is talking about salvation. Notice that this healing is not at all in relation to the physical body. If you are a Christian, listen, God may choose to give you good health every day of your life until maybe at 101 years old you just die in your sleep. That could happen, and that would be a gracious gift from the Lord. But he nowhere promises that because of the cross you are going to experience painless existence and an exemption from suffering. Consider the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Christianity is not a get-out-of-pain-free card. Rather, healing is paralleled here with dying to sin and living to righteousness. It is about salvation and the results in returning to the shepherd of our souls. Speaking of shepherds, irony 11 The shepherd will become a substitute for straying sheep. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Now, similar to what we have already seen, the imagery for substitution here becomes much more clear. Jesus was dying for actual sins of actual people at the cross. This was not a potential offering for sin. It was an actual offering for sin. The question that we need to answer here is what does it mean when he says, us? What does it mean when he says that he has laid on him the iniquity of us all? Because all is a universal statement, but us is not. It makes it an exclusive group that he is referencing. Who is being spoken about here? Now, what we are going to do is answer the question, who is us? In other words, whose sin is being paid for at the cross? And buckle in, because we are about to do a very swift survey of just a couple of occasions where the New Testament answers this question for us. We begin with Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. For whom did Christ die? He died for his people. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For whom did Christ die? He died for many. Matthew 26, 20. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For whom did Christ make this blood covenant? For many. John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And again in verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who does Jesus lay down his life for? For the sheep. And in that same chapter, he explains to the Pharisees, you are not my sheep. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who did he purchase with his blood? The church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, the great section on marriage. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For whom did Christ die? For the church. At the cross, the great shepherd of the sheep substituted himself for a particular people that he had before all time set aside to be his own. uh, Number 12 here. The one who spoke life into existence will be silently led to execution. Consider verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Now, I don't know about you, but I am really quick to speak up when I feel like my rights have been infringed or violated. I like to defend myself if I'm falsely accused. I do not want people to think I have done something I have not in actuality done. But Jesus was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Now, a lamb, get the picture, walks beside a priest happily. They wouldn't even usually put a rope around their neck because these sheep, these little lambs, were so trusting that they would just follow you right up to the altar where then you would pick them up, they would cuddle with you for a moment, you would lay them down on the rocks, and you would slit their throat and let them bleed out and light them on fire. Why do they walk up there with you? Why do they walk up like that? Well, here's where the analogy breaks down a little bit. You see, the lamb has no idea what's going on. We should not compare here what's going on with Jesus in terms of ignorance. Rather, it is in terms of willingness. Jesus was fully aware 
of the suffering that was coming at the cross. He was fully aware the penalty of sin. And that is why he prayed with such agony in the garden that it was like he was dripping with great sweat drops of blood. No, it was not a lack of awareness. It was a humble willingness to experience the wrath and judgment of God for the sake of his sheep. This is why he was cut off from the land of the living, which brings us now directly to the beautiful irony number 13, which is the Messiah's corpse will be memorialized with the corrupt. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Part of the irony here is that this burial area where Jesus was laid was surrounded by criminals. The Romans had co-opted this hill, Golgotha, and made it the place of common execution for people. Jesus and those two next to him were certainly not the only ones to ever experience crucifixion on that hill. And that area was littered with the bodies of the enemies of Rome. And they would take people who were murderers and zealots and insurrectionists, and they would bury them in that place. And he says, Jesus was surrounded by people who died because they deserved it. They were buried there because they were wicked. Where do you want to be buried? Do you want to go find a place where all of the worst, most horrible people in the world have been laid and then put yourself among them? People, like, what if there's a grave to Hitler and Stalin and Paul Pot and then you right between them? People would come and they would spit on those graves. They would, they would pour things on those graves. They would desecrate those graves and you sit right there in memoriam between them. You don't want to be laid there. However, there was a man, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, who probably owned property there for generations. And there, there had been a new, uh, a new place carved for a grave in the midst of that wicked place for this wealthy man. And Jesus borrowed that grave for three days. The irony that Isaiah is getting at here is really interesting. Remember that this Messiah was going to experience so much violence, but he says he never did any violence. And remember, Isaiah says that he has said nothing wrong. He has said nothing deceitful. Do you remember back to chapter 6 when Isaiah himself encountered the glory of the Lord? He fell on his face and he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He was very concerned about the way he spoke and the way others spoke. And he said, but this man has never said anything wrong, yet he's laid amongst the wicked. So I think the irony that Isaiah is pinpointing here is why this man would die at all. If he's never done anything sinful, isn't death for those who sin? The wages of sin is death. Thank you, Steve, today. But instead, this innocent man is dying. This innocent man is being buried amongst the sinners. That is shocking. Do you realize that there's not a big difference between Jesus being buried between Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot or you and me? There's a lot more similarities between those men and you and I than there's between, those, between you and I and Jesus. We are far closer to them than we are to him. Jesus is innocent and perfect and shockingly without any cause of death and therefore he is laid beautifully and ironically amongst the wicked. He allowed himself to be placed there amongst us. Irony number 14, it pleased the Father to punish the Son. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, 
you probably know, I preach out of the English Standard Version. I think it's a superb version of the Bible. I think that overwhelmingly, and the majority of the time, it gets the translation correct and accurate in a way that's easily understandable to the modern American ear. However, I will say, I think here it falls short of clarity. The reason I say that is because the wording in Hebrew is absolutely certain that it's more than just the will of the Lord to do these things. Let me share with you a few other translations. I I could give you many, but I'll just give you four. I think they'll be here on the screen for you. King James says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. New King James says the exact same thing. New American Standard, but the Lord desired to crush him. Christian Standard Bible, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. It's not just that there is a passive will. It's not just that this was part of the plan and he just continued chugging along. It was actually something that is written about in terms of delight or pleasure in the Hebrew language. That The sacrifice of the son was pleasing to the father. That, above all things, I find to be an absolute ironic statement. Because if any of you are parents, the worst thing you can imagine is for your child to suffer. And you can never imagine letting that happen at your own hand. And here it says that it pleased the father to crush the son. How could it be possible that the father would take delight in this? Because of the very next words. Because Jesus' soul was being made an offering for guilt. Jesus died so that guilty sinners like you and I could be made free. It pleased the father to do this because it was the only way for his rescue plan to actually save sinners like you and like me. It propitiated, it appeased the wrath of God for sin against people like you and I so that we might be saved. If you ever have any thought of doubt in your mind that God loves you, consider these words. Jesus was crushed by the will of the Father for you. He did that to his son for you. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have all the objective evidence ever needed to stand in realization that God loves me to the extent that he would crush his only son for me. He would condemn and judge Jesus instead of me. Hallelujah, what a savior. Which brings us to our fifth and final beautiful ironic statement of the day. The servant who dies will see his descendants. Look there at the end of verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice that after this suffering servant was brutalized and after his soul was poured out to death, after that... After dying, he is going to see his offspring. That is a bizarre statement to make. One of the great sad things about death is the reality that it limits our ability to see our future generations. I think it's every funeral I have ever been at in my entire life. I have heard people make statements like, I wish they could have just made it a little bit longer until that baby was going to be born. I wish they could have been there for my wedding day. I wish they could have been there just a little longer to see John graduate from high school and so on and so forth. I just wish they could have seen 
the accomplishments of their offspring. Death limits us in this way. But notice that God foretells the resurrection of Christ by declaring that Christ would see his offspring and that in doing so, he would prolong his days. His life was over, but his life will be prolonged. Resurrection. Of course, this is not a physical offspring. Jesus did not birth children. Rather, he sees here the future of everyone who would ever come to Christ in salvation. It's the ones that he says are the spoil, the ones who have their iniquities carried to the cross by the Savior. You, if you are in Christ, are the offspring. You are the spoils mentioned here. You are the promised inheritance of Christ. You are the bride for which the Father is preparing for the Son. That's you and me. Do you realize that God the Father sent God the Son to die so that he might receive the inheritance of many nations? I love the fact that in this room we have representation from biological bloodlines that have been from all over the globe. Well, guess what? Jesus is worthy of everyone. He is worthy of all nations coming to him, and he says, I will give you the nations as your inheritance in Psalm chapter 2. This is why the New Testament refers to us as the bride, pure, holy, pleasing, and blameless in his sight. Not because of who we are or what we have done, but because God has purified us through the work of the Son to become a holy bride for himself. So this is it. This concludes our time here in Isaiah for the summer. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, I feel like I'm getting shortchanged here because typically you include in your sermons some kind of application, some kind of so what, some kind of what do I do now, Pastor Caleb? Where do I go from here? And you're saying to yourself, where's the application in a text like this? It doesn't say to do anything. You haven't told me to do anything. What am I supposed to do now? Well, what I want you to understand is this is the most practical information in the world for you. This is the most significant application for you because you could do a lot of the external things right, like the Pharisees did. But if you get this wrong, everything else will be wrong. This is the cornerstone of salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It is the power of growth that propels you in your Christian life. There is not one single command in the New Testament that is distance from the gospel itself. How are you to grow in Christ? Because you trust and believe and focus your heart on the gospel. These things are what Paul says are of first importance in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Of all the things that Paul wrote, he said the gospel is of first importance. So we close our time here appropriately in Isaiah saying to you, live based upon these good news, these good things, this news of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all who are here today. I thank you for their attention span. I realize, Lord, that there's so much to say, even more from this text. God, I pray that you would help us to understand it and love you because of it. Help us, Lord, to build our lives in a way that is rooted and grounded on solid ground of the gospel so that when the wind and the waves of our culture and our circumstances shake us, that we will by no means falter or fall. Help us to stand firm and to grow and to become conformed into the image of Christ because of what we have heard today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.